Welcome to The Jump Off Point, an original podcast by Jump Capital. Today, our host, Jason Felger, and fintech partner, Peter Johnson, sit down with two of the most forward-thinking minds in trading and finance, who delve into the institutionalization of crypto and blockchain, offer advice for entrepreneurs, and we even hear of a powerful new DeFi partnership, exclusively announced here on The Jump Off Point. We have a packed house this morning and with some legitimate crypto brain power. And so I am very honored to introduce our guest. We have Sam Bankman-Fried, who is an accomplished executive investor, philanthropist, programmer, and definitely a well-followed thought leader in all things crypto. Sam founded and is the CEO of quantitative crypto trading firm Alameda, which trades billions of dollars per day in digital assets, as well as FTX, which is one of the largest and fastest growing crypto exchanges in the world. Sam began his career at Jane Street Capital, which is something we'll come back to in a bit. So welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me. We have Dave Olson, who is President and Chief Investment Officer of Jump Trading, where he is involved in all aspects of the firm's activities, but with a particular focus on building strategic partnerships, investing in new markets, and developing solutions to complex post-trade needs. Prior to joining Jump, Dave led JP Morgan's futures, options, and OTC derivatives clearing business. Dave also had various roles in trading fixed incomes, derivatives, investment-grade debt, as well as their M&A and fintech venture capital investing. Dave, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And of course, Jump Capital's Peter Johnson, who leads our fintech and crypto investing. Peter is also the crypto bridge, if you will, between Jump Capital and Jump Trading's activities. Peter, thanks for joining Happy to be back and happy I won't have to defend Bitcoin on this episode. Yeah, that will not be an issue like the last time around. So the the thread we're going to pull on today is the institutionalization of crypto, what that's looked like recently, what's ahead of us. But before we get too deep into that, let's start towards the beginning. And Sam, I'd love to start with you. You started in the traditional financial market space within Jane Street before jumping into the crypto world. What was the inspiration? or opportunity that you saw that convinced you to make that move? So, you know, I think when I left, I I didn't really know exactly what I was going to do. And really more, I just sort of felt like my goal was to figure out how I could maximize my impact. And I really liked it at Chain Street. It was a great place. I also felt, though, that it would be remiss of me not to try other things in my life. That, you know, the odds that you hit upon literally the best thing on the first shot aren't super high. And I felt like I got extremely lucky with it and did hit upon something way better than I could have expected. But still, that there were a lot of things that I that I wanted to try in my life and I want to try starting up. And and so I left, started messing around with some things. And one of the things that quickly became clear was that basically there was just huge, huge potential upside in crypto and that there was huge demand and really not a whole lot of supply of liquidity in the space. Yeah. So so in addition to Alameda, you've also been prolific in starting new things, FTX, Serum, et cetera. But what are the you know, signals that you saw in the market that indicated to you that, that there was opportunities for all of these things, different things that you've started? Yeah. It's something that I think I've been trying to hone more over time is getting a sense of when there is that huge opportunity. I think starting up Alameda was the first time I really felt that. And I sort of felt like, oh, Jesus, like this is real. 
I mean, it's, it's messy and nothing here is going to be easy, but one of the seminal things is arbitrage with Japanese exchanges, 10%. And you could do a billion dollars a day on both sides if you got the right setup. And, and so it was just sort of like a hilariously good trade. And it was just so much better than any trade you know, I'd ever seen before. And it, it only lasted a month. You know, it sort of like could not last that long like that. But this sort of sense of recognizing when something isn't just an opportunity, but it's a huge opportunity. And then thinking like, what should I do? Like, how can I grab this? And so I had that with, with Alameda. And then with FTX, it is late 2018. And crypto derivatives, it's more than half the volume of, of crypto. Exchanges are about half the crypto ecosystem, given that they're not just a, a matching engine, it's also a GUI and an API writer and they own the customer relationship. And there's the custody and the clearing and the product design and there are all these different businesses rolled up into one in crypto. And despite that, it was just, an enormous mess. I mean, I think those of you who are trading crypto, especially in 2018, I mean, there are two exchanges that were the bulk of the volume in terms of derivatives, and they were both kind of disasters. And it's like from like $350 million of like lost customer funds, failed liquidations to looming legal issues and, and all this. And, and it just sort of felt like, oh boy, like if this is the bar for two companies that make up more than half the volume together, I think we can at least build a better product than that. Yeah. And then how did, how did that lead you to, to Serum after that? With Serum, this was a little over a year later from when we started building. So this is you know, spring to early summer 2020. DeFi was really blowing up. And basically, we spent a lot of time thinking about DeFi and had a lot of really long conversations about what the ecosystem was like, what made it what it was, what the constraints were. And we just kept trying to think of products to build. And we just kept hitting these same constraints and feeling like there's just no fucking way around them. Like we were trying to build a matching engine on the Ethereum blockchain and eventually just threw our hands up in the air. Then we just took a step back and we're like, why is none of this working? Well, there's 10 transactions per second for the entire ecosystem. And that, that's the answer. Like you don't need anything more than that. That alone is just fatal. And, and so it's sort of like any big product that you want to build is not going to fit within an order of magnitude of that. And so then we sort of came at this and we're like, okay, instead of trying to think about what the easiest thing to build would be, let's think about what the most valuable thing you could build would be. And what would it take to build that? What would have to happen to get there? What are the pieces you'd have to put together? What's that technology that you'd need to use? And basically, that's sort of where Serum came from. And the core things were really maximizing for the throughput and scalability of the blockchain, you know, it's built on Solana, thinking about really what are the core products that are everywhere in finance, these sort of exchanges, matching engines, borrow lending, risk protocols, and then about what else would it take to be able to scale this, to be able to get this to a place where it could theoretically, if everything went right, scale to a billion users. Absolutely. Jump Trading is now also a large partner to your businesses. How did you get introduced and start working with Jump? I actually don't remember how we first got introduced. I, I think we just like had some conversations on and off over the last few years. And I think they're all sort of like, yeah, let's try and work together. I knew that, I don't know. It's sort of like we want to find a way to work together, but it's not easy necessarily to find what that way is. And I think Serum ended up sort of providing that spark for like, okay, here's a concrete step that we can take that we can work on together. You know, I think there have been other things since then as well that have been sort of tacked on to that. Dave, be great to pull you in here. So... What is the kind of role that jump trading plays? And, and even going back, where and when did it get into the crypto market? It was happening just about the time that I joined the company, maybe 
2015. I joined Jump in 2016. And it is a really interesting intersection of just flat out curiosity. And also, we were trying to figure out how to solve a completely different problem that we had. The scarcest resource that we've got is attracting really high caliber talent and competing for that talent on the global market, especially in computer science and computer engineering. And we've got a long history with the University of Illinois. And a few years back, we set up a laboratory in conjunction with the professors in the computer science and computer engineering departments. And the idea was you could take masters and PhD students that were doing their coursework and give them an opportunity to interact with very high performance computing, very large data sets, and either do additional coursework or code for for money, like a job, or maybe an internship or uh, get some exposure like that. And this pool of resources was sufficiently talented. We kind of quickly ran out of things, out of projects to give them. And we faced this dilemma where you don't want to expose the core intellectual property of jump trading to people that don't work for the company. And one of our founders hit on the idea, well, why don't we have this pool of talent build out high performance gateways and connectivity to the very early crypto platforms that existed back then. And it was like rough and woolly. Yeah, it's a complete jungle. Yeah. You would send orders and then get an acknowledgement back that the platform had received your order. And then you'd send a cancellation message saying, pull that order out of the market. And you'd get an acknowledgement back that that order had been canceled. And then you'd get filled on that order after that. (laughs) And you'd think, wait a minute, this isn't how a matching engine is supposed to work. And so this was back when Bitcoin was in the hundreds of dollars, not in the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. And we didn't really cultivate this because we saw this to be an enormous trading opportunity that we could realize. It was more of an experimental incubator that we thought would be kind of fun. And especially for those that were interested in, in computer science, they'd be really excited to work on. But then we found ourselves with this incredible network, took a year, maybe a year and a half to build that you never would have invested in given the market opportunity. It just wouldn't have made any sense at all. So in late 2016, early 2017, when prices really started to move and liquidity got a little bit better and these arbitrages started to open up, we realized we were sitting on a very powerful bit of proprietary infrastructure that we had a chance to put real trading horsepower behind and exploit. So the trading algorithms then were very simple. You buy Bitcoin here and you sell it over there and you make tens of basis points, hundreds of basis points with this arbitrage. The entire trade back then, nearly the entire trade was figuring out what's your post-trade movement of coins How safe is the capital that you're putting to work? So it was really a very complex post-trade challenge and a very simple trade. And that balance has shifted over time. So today, Jump is one of the leading traders of cryptocurrencies worldwide. We've got international affiliates and trade in the, the domestic US market here. We also have taken a very big role in trying to cultivate 
infrastructure for digital assets. So we've made a lot of venture capital investments and strategic investments to try to have accounting systems launch, order management systems, all of the components that might be more recognizable in the traditional financial markets applied to solving the problems to allow at least the first wave of probably first legitimacy and then institutionalization, which is the trend we're seeing quite a lot of this year and are here to talk about today. One of the things that's just amazing listening to you two is you talk about what it used to be like and obviously like the rudimentary aspects of the trades then from an, an evolution and innovation standpoint, that's a long time ago. In, in calendar time, it's not that long ago. And so it's just quite amazing just kind of hearing you both recant where it was and talk about where it's, it's at. The crypto market, I would say, has been waiting for institutional adoption. And maybe from the inside out, it's been more of a slow build. But certainly from a general conscious standpoint in, in the financial community, it seems like recently call it the last six to 12 months, there has been an inflection point. Did something change recently where you are seeing this kind of movement and momentum into the institutionalization of crypto? I think the changes, especially on the institutional side, have been in the works for a good couple of years. The kickoff to me was really the first time Bitcoin prices got above 10,000. That sparked the gears starting to turn slowly in the institutional money management and trading communities and the providers. And you saw some of the entry points become much more name brand. You know, I think of what Tom Jessup and the team at Fidelity did and Robbie Gutman at Nidig and Greg Tusar at Tagomi and, and a lot of other folks that started to lay down the rails to allow a much more institutional entry point to come into this market. But then you have the institutions themselves that have got really complicated bureaucracies that they've got to work out. At least a lot of them do. And so they sometimes in, in conversations with us would be putting the blueprints together for what would it look like if I got some exposure in this market. So now I think we're seeing some of the harvesting of those seeds that were sown back in probably early 2018. Obviously, some institutions, they've got a much more streamlined environment and their CEO can snap his or her fingers and, and buy a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin tomorrow. We've seen a little bit of that happening too. But once that ice started to break and you started to have, you weren't going to be the first one taking this kind of risk or creating this kind of attention and the attention turned out to be good, then it kind of became safer for a lot of other folks to get in the pool. Nice. Sam, we'd love kind of a layered answer here. You know, one is just general, your perspective. Where are we in institutional adoption? And then certainly your FTX and Alameda perspective is, you know, are you seeing things specifically there around institutional adoption or engagement? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that the amount of volume coming from institutions is up that much yet. But what I would say is that a lot of institutions have somewhat irrevocably committed to getting into crypto. We've seen the floodgates open and the flood hasn't come through. It's sort of trickling. The fraction of large financial institutions that today strongly expect that within a year they will be doing something in crypto is, I think, maybe above 50%. And that is compared to like 5% a year ago. 
it's just like huge, huge growth in the fraction of places that have decided that they're going to do something. And it's going to take a while for that to start matriculating. It's not going to happen all tomorrow, but that sort of pathway has begun. It's not going to be easy to walk it back. And it's never gotten to that stage before. And Dave, from a market structure and infrastructure perspective, are we now at the point that the market can support those large institutional inflows? That's a tricky one. I think that the next big shoe to drop, and I think we're going to, you know, we've already seen the very early edge of this, but I think we're going to see a lot more of it in the remainder of 2021, is the major global banks getting into the provision of access to their client bases. That is the familiar path that the majority of, of managed money, of corporate treasury, of sovereign wealth uses to access all financial markets. So that piece of the puzzle isn't really in place yet. There's an interesting race going on behind the scenes with the major banks around the world that are getting ready for that. My feeling is that nearly all of them have made the decision to take that step. And it's a question of execution now. You've also got the issue of where does the supply come from? Who are the sellers? I'm specifically talking about Bitcoin because I think that is going to be the starter asset in digital assets for a lot of companies to get involved. And you know, it's one thing if you're talking about tens of millions of dollars of demand being added to the market. But once you start to get into hundreds of millions or billions, We've seen the price action that, at least in part, has been affected by that over the last six or nine months. And so the market structure is there for the beginning stages. But once you open up access and more traditional access points, then you're going to have the supply phenomenon kick in. And it's going to be a question of who puts down those bets early and gets access at prices that even in today's market still feel pretty reasonable. Yeah, Sam, you touched on the signals. You quoted a couple of percentages as far as like where, where folks are actually at from an engagement standpoint. What do you think are the biggest gaps to get them to move from interest and curiosity and, and maybe some actual early signs of engagement to like actually embracing this more at a core level within the enterprise, within the institution itself? Time. I mean, that's just by far the most important thing. These institutions don't move overnight. Even if nothing changes about the world, they're going to get more involved. It's not that they're like waiting for a thing. It's that they've started the committee that's going to nominate the committee, that's going to design the committee, that's going to design the risk framework. Like it's, it's a process, you know, and it's going to take a year, whatever. It'll take three months for some. It'll take three years for others. They'll start small. They'll test it out. They'll see how it goes. They'll get feedback. They'll iterate like everyone else. It might be slow iteration. They'll iterate. That's just going to be the dominant factor here. And then the other thing that I would say, I think that crypto still has a chance to fuck this up. And we saw that in January 2018, people were having kind of similar conversations. It wasn't quite at this stage. It's one stage below. Over half of all institutions were having the committee meeting about whether they were going to decide that they're going to do something in crypto eventually. That was sort of the stage that was, I was at the stage where Goldman probably had high-level people meeting to try and decide whether they're going to do anything in crypto or not. By now, they've kind of mostly just had that meeting decide that they will do something probably. But in 2018, it was just, it was one stage before. And when it was kind of stuck in that stage, things went to shit. Markets crashed. ICOs got a really bad reputation. 
And all of a sudden, all of those institutions, which had been sort of maybe leaning towards doing something, like, ah, okay, I guess we're not going to do anything. The difference in what we're seeing now versus when those conversations were happening in 2018 is the banks were not facing the same groundswell of client demand to be given access. I think the banks saw the opportunity and they were thinking of how do we become the first mover in this market? But those committees would cycle back to, okay, let's say we do this. Who are the first 10 clients that are going to use it? And they had a hard time coming up with that value proposition for their client base at that time. Now, the conversations are the reverse. Their phones are ringing off the hook with money managers, hedge funds, corporations saying, hey, I'm going to get exposure to Bitcoin or to digital assets in general. I'd love to do it through you. But if you don't offer this service, I'm going to figure out another path. And that's making the wheels turn a little bit faster at a lot of these institutions. Do you both? Do you think that there are foundational gaps or challenges yet to see that near-term potential? Or is it just, as you said, Sam, is it just price and the associated risk perception with price, price of Bitcoin? I think probably price is more than half the total story there. There's other things, right? If there's huge scandals, right? BitMEX, people could kind of write off as like one player that was not acting well with regulators and maybe now is getting their shit together. If you have like three more BitMEXs, in the next six months, that, that could be quite bad as well. And I mean, I guess on the flip side, a major world government semi-endorsing crypto in some way could be like a positive shock. So things could happen. But frankly, I think price action is probably more than half of the total in expected value of what matters. I think the two pieces that are coming into much better focus are accounting and having the big four accounting firms in the US be able to audit a corporation that has digital assets on its balance sheet. And then I wouldn't underestimate the impact that BNY Mellon's entering into the custody part of the equation is going to have. That is a, another big piece of the puzzle that is going to make it easier for corporations, especially to say, look, they're our custodian for everything else. Why not have them expand the offering to include Bitcoin? And everybody kind of nods their heads sitting around the board table that that's a very sensible thing to do. Cool. Let's switch gears. Let's talk about DeFi. Sam, you started both a centralized exchange in FTX and a decentralized exchange in Serum. And so I could probably just stop there and say, explain, what do you think is happening there? And how do you help people kind of rationalize both of those formats, both of those strategies? Yeah, so there's a pretty big difference, especially now in what the spaces look like. And you look at centralized exchanges, and those are venues where HFT firms can trade billions of dollars a day with like sophisticated instruments and like lots of wacky products and tokenized equities and prediction markets and, and nice cross margining and tons of customized GUI and security features. And then you look at DeFi and it's way more primitive. Centralized exchanges so far further than decentralized exchanges in terms of the product, if you ignore the fact that decentralized exchanges built them into the blockchain and centralized exchanges just get to use AWS. And so really, I think the answer is like, at least right now, like one of them is a way more powerful product and the other is a way more novel and cool product. But eventually, there's a lot of things that are just going to want to live on a centralized exchange. They're already centralized, so there's no harm in centralizing them. 
But on the flip side, if you want to have composability, that's just never going to work for centralized products the way it does for, for DeFi. You're never going to have this sort of seamless plugging together of applications anywhere else. And that's a really powerful thing about DeFi. Yeah, I don't know what the future holds exactly, but I, I do think that they actually have some overlap, but actually have decently different niches. Dave, how is jump trading involved in DeFi? How, how do you look at it and, and how are we involved with Serum? Well, first off, we're really excited about DeFi. The market structure implications for what can be done, not this year, but over the next 10 years are among the most exciting things that we have focused on at Jump Trading in our history. It's a game changer. We were really excited to be able to connect with Sam and have what's turning into really a terrific partnership with Serum. We are excited to, to trade on Serum. Still, within DeFi, we're being very selective in what we participate in. And in the arena of things that we are doing, not only are we an active participant on Serum, but we're also very involved in the development of a new capability, at least as of this taping that hasn't been announced yet, which I'll do now. <laughs> we're collaborating on a World Oracle project called Pyth. It's P-Y-T-H. This was really inspired by the capabilities of the Solana blockchain and the vision of what Serum was able to do with it. But turning its focus to market data and allowing the raw material of very high performance, very precise market data to be injected into smart contracts that were written using these protocols. So if you think about participants in a DeFi environment where you've got the risk transfer that's embedded in code that has been written in a smart contract and put on the blockchain. You've got a self-contained vehicle that contains all of the parameters of a financial contract that are going to be executed on the nodes on that blockchain without involvement from any other source, which is great. If you want to hedge your risk to the value of the euro, you could write a contract for that. If you want exposure to the value of a stock, you could write a smart contract for that. But the problem is to determine the payoff, you need external data to come from somewhere else and tell that smart contract, what was the value of the euro when my contract expired? Or where did Tesla close today? Or where is Tesla this second? Or did it ever touch $700 during this trading window? And the availability of, I would say, retail-like, or this will sound pejorative, but hobbyist kind of approaches to oracles exist and are doing very well. We want to take it up to the extreme high performance tolerances that global trading firms, asset managers, hedge funds, real institutional performance for price formation and delivery on the blockchain. So Pith is going to, we believe, address that. We're going to be a contributor to that. There are several others that are going to announce themselves, and it is going to be built for and run on the Solana blockchain. Extremely exciting development, in our opinion. And we've talked a lot today about the institutionalization of the crypto market, and we've used Bitcoin as shorthand for that. That's an exciting theme. That theme is going to play out for years. But 
in our opinion, the more exciting theme is the institutionalization of DeFi and how the intermediaries and the rent seekers in financial markets that exist today could very well be disrupted by parties being able to interact directly on chain and have a safe solution to do it. So that's going to be maybe the podcast next year. We'll look back and we'll talk about how the early stages of institutionalization are are coming to DeFi with some of these tools. We talked a lot about where we've been, where we're at, and Dave started to touch on with Sam, you know, Pith and some of the things that are coming. But Dave, from Jump Trading's perspective, you know, are, are there other nodes that we're excited about? Are, are there other trends that we're exploring? And just how are you starting to think about what's coming next uh, as it regards to crypto and where it's it's at from an institutionalization? I think there are a couple of things that we're really focused on and really excited about beyond the ones that we've touched on already. You know, I'm thinking about what's happening in the stablecoin arena. Luna, for example, and the Terra platform and what they can do with regard to moving digitized money around the world and the kind of platforms and services that might be able to be built on top of that. Also, the infrastructure elements. Crypto is still somehow this futuristic modern capability that is operating on financial market infrastructure, or at least the payment and the risk management and the clearing mechanisms that maybe existed in the 1970s for traditional finance. So we've got to go a long way to de-risk a lot of the flows in crypto in general. The CLS bank has been around for a few decades now, and nobody talks about losing their full principal on an exchange of one currency for another, but it's going to take a spectacular failure, which everybody in this market is exposed to right now, for settlements to wake us up if we don't solve that problem really quickly. So there are a few of those structural elements that we're also excited about. But best thing about this market is someone right now is putting the final touches on a white paper that we can't even really conceive of. And the same kind of curiosity and inadvertent need that we had that drew us into digital assets in the first place is happening. And we want to be in touch with those developers, those dreamers that are coming up with a new application that everyone else is telling them is crazy. And we'd love to be having those early conversations and poking around on it. We've got a big tolerance for failure. So not all of them have to work out. But it's fun to experiment with the ones that really stretch your head. Sam, what are you most excited about? And if you can share just some of the the forward-looking things that you all are working on. Yeah, I wish I had a better track record with this. I think I have a pretty good track record at finding things that are already huge and people haven't quite realized yet. I think my track record of finding the, the next things that'll be huge is quite a bit sketchier. But I guess on the second thing, some things I think I find very compelling. And maybe someday the world will agree with me. One of them is I'm really excited for decentralized social networks. One of the reasons I think there's actually a lot of latent demand for it. I think you ask people, like, how do you feel about your social networks right now? Like, do you feel like they are governed well? I don't think people are getting, it's not going to get high approval ratings. Despite being central, really central things in most people's lives, Facebook and other social media, really low approval ratings right now. People want something else. They, particularly want something that is more under the user's control. And they're huge. They just play an enormous role in the world right now. And they just obviously can be put on chain. 
it's like you look at Twitter and yeah, okay, you can store text on chain. You can encrypt it if you want to control who sees it. Following people wherever you can just like list the addresses of tweets that you want to be displayed on your GUI and all of these pieces you like think about for two minutes, you're like, okay, yeah, that works. And so I think it's just like this gigantic industry that people haven't really done a, a huge, really impressive push on, but that just eminently could be. That's one thing I'm I'm pretty excited for. Another thing that I would say is I'm really excited to start to see what happens when crypto exchanges start to kind of edge closer and closer to traditional exchanges. Obviously, FTX is is playing that game, right? Like tokenized equities, got the prediction markets, a future can expire to anything. Just what's the Oracle? But okay, then you look at everything else and you're like, does it have a really good retail GUI. Wait, does it even have a GUI at all? It's not a thing it has. It's literally just a technology backend. And does it have like a mobile app again? No, it's just a technology backend. How about a risk engine? Sort of, but not really. It's a really rudimentary risk engine. It's not doing the full portfolio value calculation. It's like enforcing some exchange limits with it's a clearing, it's sort of like prime brokers. We're actually doing the risk calculation. And does it have the users, not any of the institutional counterparts, not the retail users at all? You start start digging into all these things and you're like, oh, wow, it's actually like a pretty simplistic product in some ways. Then you look at their getting into crypto exchanges. I mean, it's a matching engine, it's a GUI, it's an API, it's a mobile app, a product launching engine. It has a risk engine, it has liquidations, it has cross-margining, 24-7. I mean, there's there's actually a lot of things to, to recommend it. And I mean, I think there's a lot of different industries that are like a little bit vulnerable to that. Sam, I agree with you that it's very easy to conceive of a on-chain social network. But we've seen even in the poorly governed, centralized, corporate-owned social networks, the ability of nefarious users to weaponize these for like really insidious terrible purposes. How do you wrestle with that question of, does this just become an instrument of evil? I do worry about that. And I think what I would say is, well, okay, but what's the status quo? Like the goal is, is better or worse than what we have right now? And there's a really fucking awkward thing right now, which is, I mean, you look at the reception that Twitter got when it banned Donald Trump right after the election for, you know, trying to incite a, a coup. And it was not a popular move. And social media in general, I mean, obviously conservatives hated it. It was not a popular move amongst liberals, really, either. I mean, sort of like standard conventional wisdom response was like, this is kind of like an assault on something like free speech, although it's a free speech assault on free speech. But I mean, it it was not taken well. Then you rewind to 2016, right? And what was the, the common reaction to Facebook's behavior in the 2016 presidential election? Yeah, fucking roasted. And they got roasted because they didn't ban accounts. Right. Like they got roasted because there are a lot of Russian troll accounts that were active in the election. And people said, why didn't you do something? You knew that there are certain dangerous accounts. Why didn't you ban them? Then four years later, like, okay, fine, we'll ban them. That's what you want. Right. It's like, what the fuck? You're banning users based on political beliefs. You can't do that. And, and it's actually like, I don't know. There's no good choice. Hard one. How about from a uh, investments perspective? We're very active in investing in new companies and projects in the crypto space. It seems like you and Alameda are very active in in making new investments. Are there specific areas, types of companies, projects that you're particularly excited about right now? 
I definitely know that I like my instincts are wrong on some, some aspect of this. Like my instincts do not reliably predict what tokens will go up. In particular, I, I think they're like underactive. There are a lot of tokens I think you could predict will do quite well that I, I sort of like have no interest in. From an investment perspective, maybe that's a mistake. Because I'm seeing a project like, oh, this, that, no, no interest, that's kind of shit. And then it's be like, I think it's going to go up 10x. And I'll be like, okay, honestly, I think you're right. Ignoring that and thinking about which projects we both think will do well, but, but I also think the actual project. Cool. In general, I tend to take much less of a perspective of just see, see what comes out. It's like, oh, here's a wacky new idea. Great. That sounds kind of cool. I kind of think most of the wacky new ideas, there's a reason they're wacky. It's because no one wanted them or because they couldn't be done well. Not all of them, obviously. Sometimes I'll see something like, and be like, holy shit, that's brilliant. Like that, that might work and that would be huge. But I think more frequently, I look at something like, is there a demand for this thing? Is it something people actually want? Is it solving a real problem or providing a demanded service? And then second of all, if it is, is it better than the alternative? Is this thing going to be the thing I would tell someone to use? Or is this thing going to be like a shittier version of seven other versions of it? Those are really the two criteria I use above everything else. I think DeFi borrow lending protocols, huge, huge opportunity, absolutely massive demand. And then the other thing I'll say is infrastructure. Everyone underestimates infrastructure. The amount I would pay for a great block explorer, unlike a great Infura equivalent, like RPC server, and like a great wallet, those are so fundamental to user experience. I worry that a lot of people are like, oh, great, I'm going to make a, one of those. I'm going to make a wallet. I'm going to make a block explorer. And I get really excited. And then they do like a little, about as well as the other people did, kind of B level, B minus to B. And they launch it. And I'm like, it's okay. It's actually like no better than the alternative, maybe a little worse. That doesn't help me. That doesn't solve any problems. It would be solve a lot of problems if there are no wallets, but there are wallets. But the actual problem is build a great wallet. So many people fail to get it that last mile that go into a really crucial piece of infrastructure as a space, but one that's kind of crowded already. It's all the value is in doing an A to A plus job. And I just like worry a lot of people don't get there. But if, if they do, then I think that's enormously valuable. Yeah, those are a lot of the same areas that we're looking at from an investment perspective. The, the borrowing in lending market is obviously huge. Stable coins, as Dave mentioned, we're extremely bullish on. Uh, synthetic assets, uh, we're really interested in. And then, as you mentioned, companies building great infrastructure for DeFi. Uh, another thing I want to get your perspective on is, as you're, you're a founder, you're an investor, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are building new companies in the crypto space? There's one piece of advice I'm not going to give, even though I understand why one would give it, which is like how to maximize like amount of value you can extract quickly from the ecosystem. I almost feel compelled to acknowledge that that's a powerful piece of advice one could give. I don't want to give it. I don't think it's healthy, the ecosystem. So ignoring that, and instead talking about the advice I think might be helpful and good for the ecosystem, the biggest thing I would say, always try and keep pushing, keep making it better, keep doing everything you can on that front, keep iterating, keep tweaking, keep innovating. These are sort of boring things to say, but they're just so central to how well products do. And so many products fail because they just... It's not that they like had some fundamental misconception. They just kind of stopped trying hard. I don't know. They stopped doing stuff really. They like don't address big flaws that they know exist. They kind of don't want it. It's sort of annoying. So much of, of doing well is getting past that stage and just kind of ruthlessly trying to build a good product at the expense of all of the flags internally that are like, maybe I shouldn't bother building a good product. Maybe it's already good. Why bother doing this? 
that seems annoying. I'm going to think about something else. It's like, no, it's important to your product experience. Do you want it to be a great product? If so, you got to do that. You got to, you got to solve that problem. And that, that I think is just a really fundamental thing. And, and then combined with like, make sure your team works well together. Dave, what advice do you have for you know companies, big, big or small, but particularly earlier stage that want to work with Jump or are, are thinking about trying to enter the market? I think there are a couple different categories of folks that we talk to and that are interested in speaking to us. Even though we trade literally millions of crypto transactions a day, we're not necessarily focused on scaling a lot of direct connectivity to infrequent users of, of digital asset markets. It's just not who we are. We're, we're not going to be a, a firm that's got tens of thousands of, of direct relationships. So I think those types of participants are better off using the existing platforms, whether it's DeFi like Serum or exchanges like FTX or, or LMAX that has got a great institutional product. We typically will be interacting with that liquidity on those types of platforms anyhow. It's the teams that have got a faster, cheaper, greener approach to solving some of the crypto problems that we're extremely interested in talking about early stage and thinking about how maybe the combination of our liquidity or some of the lessons that we've learned can help propel them. And we've had a lot of productive discussions with founders that are taking new approaches and and solving new problems. I think it echoes very much the advice Sam was giving. Find a need that you can improve. And we want to be talking to those groups. The theme, the word we kept using is the institutionalization of crypto. What I heard everyone say here is we could have just been talking about what are the, the demand signals that are pulling the markets into these new areas. And, and it is so much just about both you know, the consumer and the customer demand, as well as just some of the, the early institutional players and, and where they're moving. And I think that's a great note to end on, which is it really is the demand signals. It's where the industry is being pulled and, and frankly, pulling many into it. But I think it's pretty exciting. So thank you, Sam. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Peter, for the time today. Absolutely. Great to be on and a uh, fun topic to be a part of. Yeah. Thanks for having me. That, that was great. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this month's episode of The Jump Off Point, an original podcast from Jump Capital. We certainly enjoyed hearing Sam and Dave's perspectives on the past, present, and future of crypto institutionalization and unexpectedly hearing of the powerful new partnership between Pith and Jump Trading. The opportunities that decentralized finance enable are boundless, and we appreciate such expert insight on what to expect as this rapid evolution continues. If you have an idea for the show or know of someone who would make a great guest, contact us at podcast at jumpcap.com. See you next time.